Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers. Recently, I had the chance to interview Paul Trinka about his new book, Brian Jones, The Making of the Rolling Stones. This was not the first time I've talked to Paul. A few years ago, he wrote the definitive biography about Iggy Pop called Iggy Pop, Open Up and Bleed. And this new book about Brian Jones is definitive as well. Recently, I had a chance to talk to Paul Trinka from his home base in London, England, and had a delightful time talking to the one-time editor of my favorite music magazine, Mojo Magazine, about his brand new book. I started off by asking Paul Trinka why he decided to write a biography about Brian Jones. I've read a lot of Stones books, including Keith Richards' Life, and I found them all just unsatisfying, basically. I, I did sense that the whole story hadn't been told. And I think, basically, with the Stones, people have repeated the same old stories, and certainly Keith tends to, bless him, repeat the same old stories. And I really felt the the way was open to have the proper thing done, you know, properly sourced with a bunch of new interviews. So that's what I tried to do. How many people did you talk to in, in doing your research for this book, Paul? About 130, which was a lot. So that meant every chapter, you know, I'm probably speaking to about 10, 15, 20 people. So it means the stories don't rely on one source or one assertion. It's just people backing up each other. So, you know, I think it gives a much richer tale than if you don't have as many people as that. Was there one particular person you spoke to who who had the most revelatory things to say about Brian Jones, things that you had never heard about him before? I think he was really getting the whole thing on mass. Um, one crucial person was Stash, um, who is the son of Balthus. He was Brian's mate. He got busted with him. So he spent a lot of time with Brian. And, well, being busted with him was a heck of an experience, as you can imagine. And I couldn't have really done the book if it hadn't got to him. And then there were other people, Marianne Faithful, who's very kind of true emotionally, really gives you a kind of steer on how everybody felt at the time. So, you know, what I was telling in, in some cases is a completely new story. So you're very reliant on interviewees. You know, you've kind of been buffeted from one to the other. But it was um, a kind of privilege to, to get to them all. There were just so many, really. It just went on and on. I was lucky to get guys from the really early days of the Stones, somebody called J- James Felge. You'll often see bits of quotes repeated from them again and again and again, but to actually track them down, tell them what other people have said, get their reaction, you know, experiment idea, you know, ideas with them, and it gets you to a different level. Brian Jones was an incredibly complicated man, wasn't he? I mean, you write it just at various descriptions at various times, so creative, so sensitive, antisocial, violent, an ugly person, a drug-addled person, and yet an, an absolute creative genius. Give me your thoughts about the, this incredible person who, who gave the band its name and, and was the, and so many people don't realize this, Paul, right? That he was the leader of the band for, for quite a while at the beginning. It, it's not even the fact he was the leader of the Rolling Stones. He was the one guy, the one guy in, in Britain or America who thought this blues music is something that, that kids could pick up on that could be a mass market music. And he, he talked Mick and Keith into it. So even before, you know, we go on about him controlling the recordings, coming up with the name, you know, teaching them a load of stuff, he just was the one with the idea. He was a game changer. But a lot of that came from his own kind of personal problems. He was always running away from stuff, you know. So that was his problem as a musician. He 
he had to kind of come to London because there were too many people gunning for him, too many irate fathers in <laughs> in Cheltenham. And, you know, he was a flawed person, but his flaws are what gave him greatness. And there was a kind of, it, despite it all, there's a, a purity for him. And, I, you know, I felt for him a lot, and I certainly felt a lot of respect for him because he, you know, he had a lot of faults, but he made he opened up vistas for lots of people, including you know all the black musicians in in Chicago and Detroit and whatever. They you know it was it was Brian Jones who put them on TV when Howlin' Wolf came on TV for Shindig in May '65. Most people in America had no idea who he was, and that's kind of one of the most profound changes that Brian Jones helped engineer. It's pretty incredible. A lot of folks may not realize, you know, when the Stones first played here, you you mentioned specifically them playing to a half-filled house in Detroit back in uh, on their first tour in 1964. And uh, then, I don't know if it was that tour or a little bit afterwards, they went to Chicago and recorded uh, at Chess Studios and a couple of real key songs that's all over now and Time Is On My Side. Why, what, why did it take a little while for the Stones to really hit it here? in America? Well, I think, you know, because everything was on a knife edge. Everything was improvised. You know, nobody really, there was no map for any of this. So everybody was kind of busking it. And, um, you know, in terms of the infrastructure, um, you know, the Stones didn't have a, a real infrastructure in the way that we do now, in the way that was built up later. You know, he needed things like mafia connections to get at many of the good places. You know, so all that stuff came bit by bit. But, you know, really, they were just flying by the seat of their pants. Name me some of your, your say, uh, a handful of your favorite moments of Brian Jones on various Rolling Stone songs. And what did, I mean, beyond his incredible gu- guitar work, I mean, being able to master instantly coming up with these ideas on, on so many other songs on different instruments. What are your, some of your very favorite moments on some Rolling Stone songs, Paul? Well, I think if you think of something like Under My Thumb, I mean, that's the archetypal kind of mean Stone song, just with a kind of put-down lyric. And yet it's the beauty of the marimbas that Brian Jones came up with that, that gives the song its melody and really makes it fly. And then, of course, you know, we have songs like Painted Black that without his sitar wouldn't even be a song. And then I really love No Expectations, where we often forget that even those later Stones albums, they're very much defined by Brian's obsessions, his love of really early blues. You know, he was exploring all of these blues tunings that, the, that Keith took up later on. And then finally, I'd really say Ruby Tuesday, which with all its kind of fragility, sensitivity, that's Brian. You know, he came up, we think, with a melody. He played the recorder on it. He played the piano on it. And it just took the stones to a different place. He was he was a flawed person, but he was a very sensitive person. And really, once he's gone, you don't hear that sound any longer. It just goes. What uh, do you attribute to, what began his downfall with, with the group? Uh, why did things start to decline with him. I mean, drugs and alcohol became such a factor, but after a while, it seemed uh, Keith and Mick just, just out and out hated him and just gave him this subservient role. When, when did this, how did that all happen? Well, that almost started right at the beginning because Andrew Oldham wanted to get control of the band by you know, dividing and ruling. So Mick was very much his creature. Um, 
Oldham set up against him. So even on the records, he, he just pulled the fader down on Brian. So listen to I Want to Be Your Man, listen to the fantastic guitar. That's Brian all over the place. And then the fader gets pulled down thereon. And some of it probably was because Brian was difficult, but it, it became a real feud. And of course, Brian was a sensitive person. So to evade that, then he... Uh, he, he turned to drugs, so it became more unreliable, and it became a vicious circle. And the Stones were, you know, they made great music, but they were it was a very dysfunctional, nasty organization, all of them. You know, Brian could be nasty. They could all be really nasty, because they were kids. You know, it was on the edge. They didn't know what they were doing. And um, yeah, I guess out of all that, we did get great music, but there was a lot of pain and suffering, you know, produced as a result of all of that. Who were some of his closest friends outside of immediate band members who you write write about pretty fascinating relationships about some folks that he did manage to stay friends with? I'm thinking specifically of Jack Nietzsche, right, the producer? Yeah, Jack Nietzsche was the one guy who was always rooting for him. And then Jack, you know, t- towards the end, he was com- Jack was completely horrified by how they sidelined Brian and treated him because he was the stone that he really liked. And um, but towards the end, you know, Brian was just reliant on the kindness of strangers because Alan Klein was an absentee manager, didn't really care about him. Um, he was estranged from Mick and Keith, partly because the lawyers were telling him not to associate with them as all the British cops were chasing him around. So literally, he'd just be sleeping on people's sofas. You look at it now, it's awful, but it does happen. You know, it still happens today. Drugs made it worse. He changed to prescription drugs because the British police were persecuting him and they kind of ruined his musical coordination. And the whole thing was so stressful that you'll hear about him outside the Stones. There's this wonderful period when he went to Morocco to record the master musicians in Jijuka. And it's an amazing village. I went there and he was like a different person. you know, liberated, helpful, calm, you know, looking after people. And then he went back to Olympic Studios a few months later. He was just a mess again, could hardly function. That's an awful story, really. Not too far away from Ann Arbor, Paul, there's a, a wonderful museum, the Arab American National Museum, and there's an exhibition devoted to uh, the master musicians of Shizuka that uh, is up until November. That's absolutely fascinating, and I still treasure my, my rare vinyl copy of the album when it first came out. I mean, here was a man who was, you know, putting new, you know, world music on vinyl before we even were calling it world music back in, you know, the late 1960s. Such a visionary, just such a visionary well, absolutely, person. Yeah, because the to have the one vision of this blues music being something that the whole world would want to know about was visionary. And then, you know, to do it again with Jujuka. And of course, it's just one of the many tragedies. They just sat on that record. You know, he wanted to get it released years earlier. It didn't happen, you know, because it was just not part of Alan Klein's program. So, and then they, the, the band reissued it recently and messed up the, re- you know, messed up the release, just changed the sleeve around. It's really tragic because this guy was a visionary and he he loved world music because he just he saw it as the same thing as all the music he loved. He didn't really believe in all the barriers between different stuff. And he wasn't into blues because it was different and exotic in the way the other guys were. He just thought it spoke of people's humanity. So in that extent, he, he was a real visionary. And it goes way beyond, you know, the band who are touring now, you know, the Rolling Stones as they are now, you know, however much you may enjoy them. You know, it's about something much bigger. He really opened up all these avenues for people that, have, you know, that we've all continued to derive enjoyment from for decades now. 
It's such an ex- exhaustive, extensive, uh, a whole cottage industry into the mysterious death of Brian Jones. In fact, you, the end of your book is, is a coda filled with kind of lo- looking at one conspiracy theory, one theory after another about who he died and, and if he was murdered. What, what is your conclusion about Brian Jones? And take us back to that fateful day when he passed away and, and what really did happen. Well, I think that is the right expression, actually, cottage industry, because you come up with a theory, you know, and and you come up with some evidence and you know often that's enough to justify a book but the official version that he drowned while under the influence of drugs you know there are inconsistencies there but far fewer inconsistencies than in the conspiracy theories most many of which are ludicrous you know from people who weren't there from people who for, for who would tell their friends you know they were convinced he drowned in the years afterwards, and suddenly 20 years later, say all along, you know, it's a, it was hushed up and he was definitely murdered. Um, it's one area where I agree with Mick Jagger. I think he said, you know, the pe- most people who, the people, people are saying he's murdered are people who are trying to sell you a book or whatever. And in quite a lot of cases, I, you know, I, by no means, uh, you know, I don't know about all of them, but in a lot of cases, there's evidence there that people know is bogus. And, you know, I found much of it bogus and laughable, to be honest. Deathbed confessions, you know, that somebody told somebody about a couple of years ago where there's no real evidence. And, of course, dead men can't deny that they confessed to a crime. You know, it's just we see this all over and people love conspiracy theories. You know, so I had some people who tell me all about how Brian was murdered in exactly the same way that Lady Di murdered. But all along, you're expecting the villains to be, you know, supermen, you know, super competent who could plan everything to microseconds. And the sad truth is, you know, with Brian, the people who knew him and loved him, they just knew that it, it was over. He'd, you know, he'd been destroyed as a person. He might well have come back if he'd had, you know, good therapy. All those kind of things were in their infancy back then because he was a pioneer. But no, I think yeah, so many people just holding on to this memory that he was this guy who was going to make it on his own and um, and going to come back and that, that the people murdered him to stop him coming back and sadly he was just having real difficulty functioning so it's it's you know in that respect it's a terribly sad story but we still have the music and ultimately that's what he cared about